0: Welcome to the Jolly Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Barrett. This podcast is for those who are interested in the conversation around equity, diversity, and inclusion. Each week, I'll be interviewing a guest who has something special to share or is actively part of building solutions in the space. Let's get started. All right. So since this is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, I thought this would be the perfect opportunity to have some fabulous women come on and talk about breast cancer. And we know breast cancer disparities among African-Americans are a significant public health concern. And it can refer to things like differences in incidence, mortality rates, access to healthcare services as compared to other ethnicities or racial groups. And so, first, I want to welcome you all to the Jolly Podcast. I am so honored and grateful to have all of you here. I have the pleasure of having such a wonderful network of, of women that I can call my friends and I am appreciative that you all have have agreed to join me for this conversation and I really hope that this podcast will help somebody so I'm happy to introduce all of you to these three remarkable African American breast cancer survivors they are phenomenal and fabulous and they have all battled breast cancer and I just want to ask you all so that people connect your voices to who you are, if you would introduce yourselves, and then we'll go around and maybe talk a little bit about your journey. So, shall we start with Glennis? Good
1: afternoon. My name is Glynis Dove, and I am a 31 year breast cancer survivor.
2: My name is Matala Floyd Okanluan, and uh, I'm a two time breast cancer survivor. And uh, I just finished treatment, so finishing the second bout. And Marguerite,
3: hello. I'm Marguerite Tolliver, and I'm a three-time breast cancer survivor. And I will get into more details about the three times later.
0: Thank you. Wow. I mean, I have like goosebumps right now because I've known you all for a long time. And some of this information is even so new to me. Like the three times I'm like, I knew you were a breast cancer survivor, but twice and three times and a 31 year survivor. Oh my goodness. So with that being said, I would love it. If you would maybe talk a little bit about your journey and maybe we'll start with Glennis again, since she's the 31 year And maybe you could talk a little bit about your journey, and then we'll kind of circle the virtual room. So my journey started in
1: 1992. And at the time, I mean, most, well, all of us know, mine came about because I used to watch the soap operas all the time. Young and the Restless was my favorite one. And at that time, Mrs. Chancellor was going through breast cancer, so they were, and they were doing the whole thing live so much. And so they were telling, showing you how to do the breast exams, the whole nine yards. And so I just happened to do the same thing and felt a lump. And I thought, oh, this is weird. And so in, in retrospect, I had been feeling a lump for a while, but didn't realize that's what, what it was. Because at the time, I had one of those pads on my bed that was the waffle mattress. So I just thought it was one of the waffles of the mattress. Not that there was a lump on me, that it was the mattress. Okay. So fast forward to Ms. I I go and I get my diagnosis. Well, at that time, the doc it was the tumor or this lump was the size of a lemon. So the doctor told me, he goes, oh, we're going to try something different. So I did several rounds of chemo first to shrink the tumor. Then he did the mastectomy, and then I had a couple rounds of chemo afterwards. I never
2: had to have radiation, but I did have chemo. Okay, Montana, you want to go? No, we couldn't get through this without that. Uh, anyway, I found uh, a um, lump in my left breast, and I, when I was of childbearing age, I had lumps but they were cysts. Uh, And so I wasn't worried about it because I figured, well, it's just another cyst. popping up like 50 years later, but it was a cyst nonetheless. And my denial of uh, anything uh, more, that's what I thought. And so uh, when I went to the doctor, Dr. Brown when he did the exam, and I didn't like that, And then he suggested, well, we better get an ultrasound. And so when we got the ultrasound, I, being a a registered nurse, retired, I peeked over at the machine to see what the the person doing the ultrasound, what she was seeing. And I saw two months in there. And I said, "Hmm, they look kind of irregular. That's not good. And sure enough, uh, the doctor when we got back, and when well, I got back into the exam we said, okay, let's uh, do a needle biopsy. And so we did a needle biopsy, and then the radiologist we did the biopsy said, uh, well, the results won't be that for a week. So uh, when you come back to that appointment, usually you bring a friend or a relative to it, which you About me going lot That really, um, made me scared because why would I need a friend or a relative with me if he was just going to tell me it was another six? So that's when I realized that what I I have been descended on the journey to boy. Wow. Okay, Marguerite? Okay, my
3: journey began many, many years ago. Actually, I'm 81 right now. And my journey began when I was 22, when I first had my surgery for breast cancer. But I must say, it started when I was 15. My brother happened to notice I was in a sweater. And I have a small stature, but I had rather large breasts. And my brother noticed one breast was larger than the other. And he said, what is the matter with you? Why is one breast larger than the other? So I ran downstairs, had my my mom look at it, and she panicked because she didn't know what, what was going on. So she called my aunt, who had six girls, and they took me to the doctor immediately, and he said, well, she has excess breast tissue, and she's developing, and so there's nothing to worry about. So several years later, I think probably when I was about 18 Maybe we went back, back to the doctor and he said, oh, there's nothing there. Well, when I was 22, I went in for, to see a new physician for something else. And he said, do you have any other problems? I said, yes. Would you check my breast? So he looked at it and then he said, how long has this been like this? I said, since I was 15. So he had a puzzled look on his face. And this was in 1964. So at that time, I didn't even think anything about cancer. So he brought in his partner, who was another physician, to take a look at it. And after they consulted, they told me, we need to take you in for surgery right away. This this, this needs to come out. So at 22 years old, I, did, I was say dumb as far as cancer. So I didn't even know. And I'm going, okay, let's take it out. So when they took it out, afterwards I found out they had found the cancer cells and they were so defined and there was such a large margin. He told me that he took the tumor out and it was the size of a fist. So fortunately for me, I didn't have to have a radical mastectomy, which is what they were doing at the time in 1964. And he said the margin was so great that he felt I was so young that they didn't have to remove my breast. So that was the beginning of my journey. And then in 1999, I was scheduled for my regular mammogram I always had it in January so that i would never forget and i went in for my mammogram and they wanted to take more pictures they kept bringing me back in and i'm going oh something's wrong you had you have a sense that something is wrong because you what you know what is normal for the mammogram and i left there and they they said they would have the results well i got the results and it was cancer in the in the left breast. The first time is, it was in the right breast. So I left there and I said, okay, it's cancer. And it was. So I had, after talking with uh, three different surgeons about the options that I had, they could do a lumpectomy, a partial mastectomy or a full mastectomy. And weighing all the options and getting all the information, I decided on a partial mastectomy, which means they take more tissue of the breast than they would with a lumpectomy. So I opted for that. And I said to myself, if it comes back again, I'm definitely going to have a bilateral mastectomy. So I had the, and then recommend radiation was recommended at that time. And because of the grade and the level and I made a decision not to have the mastectomy, the radiation, because I knew if it were to return, I was going to have the mastectomy. And mastectomy after radiation, I I knew I was going to have a mastectomy, but I had also considered reconstruction. And I know it's difficult many times to have reconstruction after radiation because of the leathering of the skin. So I made that decision but not without consulting my physicians and others about what I could do. So three years later, breast cancer was in the right breast again. So it was a no-brainer at that point. I knew what I was going to do, and I knew I was going to have the bilateral mastectomy and reconstruction, which is what I did. And as I said, I was 22 years old when I first had breast cancer. And I'm 81 now. So we can survive breast cancer. And this is what we want everyone to know, that I have had a full life. I had a career. I've done every everything. And when it returned, I always tell everyone, I never cried one time with the diagnosis. But that is my makeup. I just... No, you have to take care of business. But the most important thing is early detection. And we, we can talk about that later. But you have kind of a background on my history and why I had three-time breast cancer and reconstruction, mastectomy and reconstruction.
0: Wow. Well, and so and it's interesting because like you talk about when you went at 15 years old, to the doctor. And I wonder if any of you had, because they talk a lot about just the delays in diagnosis and how that potentially impacts mortality rates and all of those things. I mean, you specifically, Marguerite, mentioned the the delay. I mean, from 15 to 22, and it's like, oh, we got to get this out. Did you all feel like you had any delays? And I know Matina being a nurse you, when you look over and and actually saw the image, you probably knew what you were looking at, but most people probably don't. Were there? Do you feel like
2: there were delays in any of your diagnosis at all? Or uh, there was no delay. Uh, if there was any delay, it was me and denial in getting into the doctor. Uh, I could have gotten in there uh, quicker than I did, but. I did get in there early. Um, My cancer was at stage two. And so that's still considered fairly early. It's not considered late. And so you're out there. Your prognosis is pretty uh, good. like as long as it's two two, to a. That means that it has not escaped into the uh, other parts of the body okay so then
0: so Glen th- and I don't know what's what stages were each of you in when you were diagnosed if you don't mind me asking now see for me I don't know because I
1: didn't want to know I'm one of those one just I told doctors do what you have to do don't tell me anything because I'm also one of the ones if they tell you your arm gonna ache then my arm aches right As so I'm like just don't tell me anything just do what you have to do so for the longest time, I never I didn't know and you and when you talk about was it delayed or not i I was never aware that I had two two bouts of cancer. I always thought it was just the the breast cancer and then I had a hysterectomy the next the following year, never knowing that I had cervical cancer. they just told me I have a hysterectomy because I guess I didn't want to hear it so anyway so yeah
0: maybe they told you and you just didn't listen oh they never told me and I and
1: I didn't know until actually the only way and I probably still would have never found out like I said I'm one of those bad patients I don't ask questions just do what you have to do I was a Kaiser patient and so Kaiser for the longest time before the hospital here in Modesto was built they contracted out so I had a a, a regular doctor in um, Modesto. And then when the Kaiser Hospital was built, then I had to leave him and go get a Kaiser doctor. So he gave me all my files. And I happened to read it. And I'm like, what was he talking about? I had cervical cancer. What's he talking about? All this other kind of stuff. So
0: that was me. So I don't know. Oh, my gosh. That's incredible. These stories, it's, it's amazing to me because I feel like for so long, we. We don't necessarily tell our stories, and I mean, I know if this is very personal for for people as well, and so I just appreciate hearing some of these stories because I think sometimes you feel like you're the only one going through something, and just to be able to hear somebody else and go, well, I didn't, I didn't know this or I didn't know that, but to be able to kind of turn yourself and and create some action. And really grow as you continue to to age to really understand. So, so can, I mean, were there specific challenges you guys faced in terms of like your treatment and recovery, and how did you overcome some of those? Because I know, like, some of you were talking about radiation and surgery. That's, I mean, that's pretty invasive.
3: Well, it is, but at the time when I first had it in 1964, people were not talking about cancer. The word wasn't even being used. My aunt, who helped raise me, she died from breast cancer, but I never knew anything about why she was ill. And my mother and aunts, they would not talk about it. I just happened to hear a conversation, overhear a conversation when they said she had died from breast cancer. And that was an awakening for me. However, when I was diagnosed and when I had the surgery in 1964, I started talking about breast cancer. And my family members would say, oh, we don't talk about that. We don't want people to know. But being the outspoken person that I've always been, I said, oh, I'm going to talk about it. And my mother was very she was she was very reluctant for me to talk about it, but I continued to talk about it. And I said, and that's before mammograms became the standard. So it was constantly checking. And then when mammograms became the standards, I started getting mammograms, and then I added that to my repertoire. Okay, you need to get a, a mammogram. You need to check your breasts regularly because when I was 15, there was it was the large tumor. But from what I gather, and and back at that time, the tumor did not have the cancer cells. It was just serendipity that I had to have the tumor taken out. And they discovered the cells were developing at that point. So that was the early stage. The cells had not been there since I was 15, but we don't know when they started. But I I was able to get it at the right time because my doctor said, we took it out just at the right time. It had not started to spread. So my journey began after that. And I have been an outspoken proponent of taking care of yourself making sure that you get your you do your monthly checks you get your annual mammogram mammograms do not detect all breast cancer in fact most of it is detected by self examination but it is the extra tool that we have that we should be using to make sure that we we find the cancer in in an early stage the earlier the better Many times, with especially with African Americans, we delay getting treatment, and so therefore we have more problems, and they, it advances much faster because we delay getting treatment. And that has been my motto: early detection is the key. So I just, I just shouted from the rooftops, and I've been doing that. But then my mom developed breast breast cancer, probably 12 years after I did. And then I found out that all of her sisters had breast cancer, which I never knew. Then I found out there was breast cancer on my dad's side. So this is something that I feel strongly about. And I never stopped talking about it. And I don't just talk about it during October, which is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. I say every month for a woman, is breast cancer awareness.
2: I would just like to add that Largely not only talks the talk, she walks the walk. Uh, She has been an advocate and assistant to many cancer patients, helping them in one way or the other. And with me in particular, she created a spreadsheet that allowed uh, my friends, my family to help out, to help me out by meeting me, by needing a right. And I never drove myself to an appointment. I always had somebody drive me uh, to an appointment, thanks to Martin and uh, spreadsheet. And so that really helped my morale because I always had somebody to talk to and somebody to visit with. Um, the other, uh, and so I'm really grateful for that. And I think that when when you uh, get cancer, uh you really come face to face with your uh mortality. And it kind of toughens you up in a way. But I I am one too like Marguerite, I talk about it to everybody. I tell everybody I want the doctor to tell me everything and I, that's probably because I'm a nurse. I don't want anything hidden. I and I tell everybody because I want everybody's prayers. I want everybody's good wishes and that kind of thing. And I think that the more we talk about it as, uh, African-American, uh, women, that others, other African-American women will see that, that, yeah, you can't help but be afraid, but you have somebody, you're not alone. And if you get in there early, that really is not so bad. I, I. I watched my brother suffer, two brothers suffered from lung cancer. My mother, she had fibromyalgia cancer and succumbed to that. And my aunt, maternal aunt, had breast cancer. And she lost both breast and succumbed to breast cancer. But that was winning back in the bin And today, cancer does not have to be a death sentence. And the early detection
1: now, what I was going to say is that now for me, I was diagnosed when I was 38. So at that at that time, I had never had a mammogram because they were set. The standard was age 40. At age 40, you start doing your mammogram. So I had never had a mammogram. And then the other thing that was unique is that when you go to the doctor, they always ask you if you if there's history of breast cancer in the family. But they never tell you that you can be the one to start the history, which happened in my family. I started, I had a breast cancer. And then the following year, a maternal cousin had, you know, so it's my mom's brother's daughter had, had cancer. So it's like, and so far, that's been it. You know, the family, thank goodness. But like I said, they never tell you that the history, that you can be the one starting the history.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's a great point. Let's pause for a moment. We'll be right back. I love the fact that we talked a little bit about just the support system that you have as you go through this. Because I know, I mean, it's Matsuna said it well. It's like you face your own mortality and. And so, how important is it? And are there things that you all do that are helpful? like for somebody who doesn't have it and maybe just wants to support you, what would you say to those those folks? How can we help? Well, I feel that everyone needs support.
3: As I started my journey, I didn't have any support, but I had I feel so strongly about things that I knew I could make it on my own at that time. However, most people can't, and you do need someone to support you, because as Martina said, it does not have to be a death sentence, but lady can increase those chances. So the, the earlier you get it, you need to have someone with you when you, See your position, first of all, because you it's a blur when you get the diagnosis. And so you don't know what is happening. So someone needs to be there to support you. I remember being with a friend and she was diagnosed. I took her to her appointment and she was diagnosed with breast cancer. But I had to relay the information to her family. So I was recording everything that the doctor was saying. And he was extremely helpful. In helping me understand what information I should impart. and this is something that I do with every friend, patient, uh, stranger, or whomever that I will go with you, and you and I say, please always have someone because you don't know what is being said; it's the complete blur. And the other thing I always say to everyone in the very beginning: remember. We have all kinds of cancer, but once we're diagnosed with breast cancer, women, for some reason, they take it harder than any other diagnosis because we look at our breasts and we feel that's part of our femininity. But believe me, my motto has been, my breasts do not define me, whether they're here or not. I'm going to be Marguerite, and I'm going to live my life to the fullest. So having a mastectomy is not easy. However, if it's what it's going to take to save your life, then then it becomes a no-brainer. So the support system is most important from the time you get the diagnosis all the way through treatment. And I've been through it with my closest friends, strangers. I've been on television and radio and different panels and I always get calls from strangers. Even a couple of times I got calls from, men, calls from men who were having other types of cancer just saying, what What can I do? So therefore, having that support system is very important and I will be with you all the way through everything. And as Majina said, I started creating this spreadsheet some time ago, but before it was just getting family together, getting friends together, and letting them know what to do. But the spreadsheet really helps a lot. And I should say, I have a friend who's in Oregon now. She was diagnosed with breast cancer earlier this year, and she decided, I'm not going to do anything about it. She just didn't want to go through it. And I just stayed on her, you have to do something about it. Her, She didn't have any family here in California. I said, you need to go back to Oregon where your family is. It took a lot to get her back there, but she was able to go back, get her treatment, get her surgery, and I was able to create a spreadsheet for her family and friends because they didn't know what to do, but the spreadsheet, and I said, you just have to be there supporting 100%. They're going to be highs and lows, but nevertheless, we can get through it. It's not easy, and I don't ever say it's easy, but... We just have to have someone there for
0: us. Yeah, that's great. Now, in terms of, I mean, as you go, have gone through this, and we talk a lot about mental health now as well. And obviously you're going through such a physical trauma, I'll call it, as we, as you were being treated. Are they, I mean, how do you maintain your own mental health as you're going through something like this?
1: Um, for me, and I, I was at my doctor's office, got my diagnosis. I left his office and within a block or two was my church. And so I went into the, and talked with one of the pastors, trying to think if I cried, I don't think I ever cried. I laid it out to him what was going on. And he prayed with me and it was like a a weight, a spirit was lifted off of me. And after that point, I never worried again. It was kind of like, God has it. I never, never
3: worried about it again. And that's great, Glennis, because how do you take care of yourself? You were asked the question. Well, I've always taken care of myself. But I believe in prayer. I believe in meditation. And I believe in yoga. Those are the things that center you. That gives you the proper perspective on how you're going to get through a day at a time. We don't look at a week, a month, or a year. We look at a day at a time. How am I going to get through this? And those things really help you and really taking good care of yourself. When you're going through uh, chemo and radiation, it's hard to think sometimes. But once you center yourself, and say, this is the journey that I'm going to have to go through. Make sure it's self-care that you have. And it's hard at some times, but you you really have to push yourself because we have strength that we never know we have until we're challenged. And then that inner strength comes out and we all have it. So taking care of yourself is one of the most important things.
2: And again, I would just say just grab that fear that comes up in you and, and take yourself to the doctor tell a friend and because I I did everything right I I I wasn't overweight uh, I didn't drink alcohol and I nursed blind babies that was supposed to be that the things that you do to prevent breast cancer and not only did I get breast cancer, I got it twice. So to me, that just shows you that you need to keep those check, do it on a regular basis, and don't be afraid to touch yourself and feel your breasts, so that you- because you know yourself uh, the best, and you can tell quite early when something is going to all right. But you have to know what's normal for yourself before you can know what's abnormal. And so, uh, and that helps you get in there or, well, don't be afraid a grab a friend, grab a girlfriend. your husband, uh, it, anybody and, and get in there and get out I love it. And I have to give a shout out to Martina.
3: I was with her when she got her first diagnosis for breast cancer. And I went through that entire, session, all the sessions with her. but. The main thing about strength is that Montana is a very centered and calm person. And we would sit in chemo and we would we would have lunch. We would do everything that we needed to do while she went through her treatment. But most important, I was going to do the cancer walk, the Avon Cancer Walk in San Francisco. It's a two-day walk for 39 miles into walking. 39 miles in two days. And I had planned to do that. Matina was in her last chemo treatment and she was sitting in the chair and I was sitting next to her. And I said, Martina, I'm going to do the cancer walk in July. She said, what is that? And I told her, I said, it's two days walking in San Francisco and the cities around it. And she said, I want to do that. Now she's, she has needles in her arm going through chemo, but she said, I want to do that. So this was in January. And the walk was in July. So when she finished her treatment, she talked with her doctors. And she got she got herself together. She did everything she needed to do to get her body in shape. And in July, Martin and I walked in San Francisco up the hills, down the hills, through Sausalito and the city of Puerto Madera. And we did that in two days. We walked 26 miles the first day and 13 miles a second day. This is the inner strength that you pull out and say, cancer will not beat me.
0: Wow, that's phenomenal. I I can't even imagine walking 39 miles with without having battle cancer. So, <laughs> it's San Francisco. I, I mean, my goodness. Wow, that's inspiring that really makes me think about my own health checkups and what I need to be doing to make sure I'm taking better care of myself. Well, and so I know we're probably coming to the end of the the podcast, but I did want to just ask, I mean, I probably could talk to you all for forever and ever because I just love all of you and so appreciate your friendship and, is there anything that you, maybe a message or a call to action that you want to tell people? You've talked a lot about early detection. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about to just promote awareness and, and help people who might be either going through it or maybe their
2: friend is going through it? Or I just want to say that the person who is responsible for the pink ribbon, her name was Charlotte Hansen. And she uh, believed this occurred in the 50s, like she had several family members and friends who succumbed to breast cancer. And she found out that the government did not unlock very much like 1%, 5%, something like that to breast cancer. And so she created this ribbon book and it was a salmon color. It wasn't pink. And so she sent it to her friends and said, you like to your a man and tell them that there uh, are lots and more uh, money for the cancer cure for breast neck." And S.T. Lauder, I believe, had an had a event of cancer. And so she wanted to use that ribbon to uh, promote awareness. And Charlotte did not want it commercialized. She said she wasn't interested in that. And so... Estimata uh, consulted a lawyer who said, Well, go ahead and make the rhythm another counter. So they made it huge. So that's how we got the pink rhythm. And we got October, I believe, uh, Betty Ford, who struck me, up uh, breast cancer. And I think we got the month so of October because of the promotion of breast cancer. I just like to know how things got started. Yeah, no, that was great. I'm glad you you
0: mentioned the history on that.
2: And one thing I'd like to add is a lot of women say, Oh,
3: I forgot to get my mammogram if I didn't do this. Set a date, whether it's your birthday, mine was always set for January because I got my physical and all of my everything I needed to do in January. This is why in January I knew I had breast cancer because I did not miss that mammogram appointment. And so therefore, whatever you can do to not miss it is to set a specific date that you can remember. On my birthday or a week before, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and make sure the mammogram. But also make sure you do those monthly exams.
0: Yes.
1: Glynis? Like I said, I I think you were saying, what what can someone do to support us? What would make me happiest is if everyone would go out and do their breast exams, do their mammograms. That would make me ecstatic. Everyone does that.
0: Well, and and let me say, we were supposed to have Tosh here, Tosh Latasha Walden, and she had a meeting at the last minute that she couldn't make it, but she did want me to um, mention, and I want to give her a big shout out because she is our fourth cancer survivor who was diagnosed at fifty-one. And she was one person that always took care of herself. She was in a high-stress job, though. And she said it kind of took her by surprise. And so for her, she was talking about everything happened so fast. And they could see a problem during her mammogram and did a biopsy that day. A lot of similar stories there. And then she ended up having a lumpectomy at stage one and would have to be seen by her oncologist for like five years and take medication. So she's now been clear of cancer for five years with, and now has no medication. She does get her 3D mammograms yearly, she said. And her advice is to just advocate for yourself. Women need to advocate For yourself and certainly men as well. But if you have dense breasts and you need to demand to have a 3D mammogram and diagnostic, that was one thing she really wanted to mention. She's very focused on her health now, nutrition, exercise, taking care of herself. So again, going back to that self-care, let's take care of ourselves, ladies. And I'm talking to myself first because I'm I'm the first one who probably is not doing the best to take care of myself. So thank you guys all for being here. I cannot thank you enough. I truly am honored and thank you for having this wonderful conversation with me on such a topic, but I do pray and hope that somebody can can be inspired by the stories of you phenomenal women who continue to go through it and not only go through it, but really advocate and turn around and help somebody behind you. So thank you for all you're doing. I'm still shocked that Marguerite is 81, but she keeps saying she's 81. I'm like, whoa, I'm shocked. too. But thank you guys all so much for all you do. And I, I just uh, really appreciate you all. So hopefully we will see more people that will advocate for themselves, get out there, make sure you have early detection, grab a friend, and just make sure you have the support you need as you go. So wishing you the best here from the Jolly Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining me on the Jolly Podcast. Please subscribe so you won't miss an episode. See you next week.